On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, Every you are attending, it is absolutely great to have you with us. If we've not met, my name is Scott. I'm the campus pastor for our Skagit campus in Mount Vernon. And as always, it's an honor to be here in Bellingham. Um, I have a sister, her name's Laura. She's two years older than me. We were pretty close growing up. And um, there's one moment that I wanna share with you that was particularly impactful. Uh, when Laura was in high school, she had a really strong drive for independence, shall we say. And one night, um, she was fighting with my parents in the kitchen, and um, it didn't go well for her because I heard her stomp down the hallway following that conversation, and she slammed the door. That is not something my dad appreciates, and so he followed her down the hallway, and I kind of like looked down. My room's at the end of the hallway. Hers first on the left. I looked down the hallway to see what his look is, and it's, he's calm. He's calm, knocks on the door, opens it, and says, please don't slam your door. The minute he steps back, bam, slams it again, like in his face. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and my dad remained calm, to his credit, walks downstairs to the garage. I'm like, what is he doing? He comes back up with a hammer and a flathead screwdriver, opens the door without knocking this time, takes the pins out of the hinge, takes the hinge off the door and says, when you can talk with respect to your mom and I, and when you can close the door without slamming it, you can have it back. It'll be at least a week. Uh-oh. I was listening. I was, I was watching and I was learning. In that moment, I learned from my sister's poor example of what not to do. And I'm guessing that many of us have found ourselves in a position similar with different circumstances, maybe different environments where we have watched others, we have listened to others, and we've learned, mm, don't do that. And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul continues um, when he is talking to this church in Corinth. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, and his ongoing repeated message three times he basically says we need to look back we need to watch we need to listen we need to learn and live differently may we not repeat the sins of our forefathers is basically what the apostle paul is saying 
In verse 1, he starts this way, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. I do not want you to be ignorant. I want you to know. I want you to be aware of. I want you to remember. Paul knew that the church was made up of both Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people may know about the Israelites, but the Gentiles may not. And so he is saying, I do not want you to be ignorant. So I'm about to tell you, remind you of the Israelites' experience being rescued from Egypt. Now, one thing to keep in mind, this morning I was reviewing this story, and it's just mind-blowing to me. You kind of wonder, like, how many people was this? Exodus tells us that there was 600,000 men That means that its safe estimation would be 1.2 to 1.5 million people on the move. That's a pretty cool thing to keep in mind. Um, So these people, God rescues them from slavery. He leads them by a cloud to the edge of the Red Sea, and they're like, hmm, that's a problem. We don't walk on water. They didn't know about Peter yet. So, um, So they're standing there thinking, what do we do? And then God parts the Red Sea. And as he parts, the whole 1.5 million people cross to the other side safely. The Egyptian army at this point is pursuing them because they want to enslave them again. And the, the waters close over them. Can you imagine being an eyewitness, seeing this happen? God's supernatural um, guidance through or to the edge of the Red Sea with a cloud. God supernaturally parting the Red Sea. I mean, absolutely cool stuff. Like this has to be impactful for them. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what this simply means is that they were united together under the leadership of Moses. Together as a people, they were following Moses. Verse 3 and 4, they all ate the same spiritual drink and drank, or the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And this is reminding us that God supernaturally provided food. He nourished them in the desert with manna and with quail, and then he turns a rock into a water fountain to satisfy their thirst. God is showing up again and again and again to provide for his people. One commentator um, suggests that not only did he nourish them physically through these signs, through these miracles, but he nourished them spiritually, meaning he grew their relationship, their faith, their understanding of God through these miraculous signs. And I want to just pause and say, I think that he grew some of their faith through these, and we'll find out why I say some in a moment. Before we continue with the story, um, I love when there are parallels in Scripture. And if we look at the Israelite story, and then you consider the Corinthians, at this point we have to acknowledge that there is a pretty um, incredible parallel thing that is happening right now. It is general, but it is a repeated thing that the uh, Corinthians experience. Um, In Israel, Israel is enslaved many, many years in Egypt, and they cry out for help. All of creation for humanity, all people, all time, all of creation is enslaved to sin and they cry out for help. Moses is born as a deliverer. Jesus is born as a deliverer. God delivers Israel through slavery or from slavery through Moses. And God delivers all people from slavery to sin through Jesus. As they journey through the desert, God provides 
And as Christ followers journey after accepting him as their Lord and Savior, God provides. I don't think that these parallels are lost on the Corinthian church. Paul is saying, remember, he was faithful then in these ways. He delivered then in these ways. He delivered now, today, in these ways. God is good. God is faithful. God is with us. And God is working for the good of his people. That is what Paul is saying. And that is why as we continue, it's really, really sad to hear what Paul says as he recounts the story of the Israelites. Verse 5 says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. Nevertheless, God was not pleased. What we see is that God is good and God is faithful, and the Israelite response is unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness. Verse 6 says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Somehow, in this rescue, in this miraculous rescue, the Israelites lost their focus. They stopped um, celebrating and praising God, and instead they turned away from. They stopped keeping their eyes on the faithful, good God who's been providing for them and turned them to smaller visions, and they actually started craving evil things. And Paul is saying, again, this happened for our example. They are our example. Corinthian Christ followers, we must learn. We must learn from the example of the Israelites. We cannot repeat what they did. And then um, as he continues, Paul names some of these evil things that they craved. Verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is when Moses is up on the mountain and, and he's gone for a long time. And they start to, to worry about where is our leader? What happens next? They start spinning into chaos. And they're like, we need a God. And then Aaron has this really stupid idea. Give me all your gold. I'm going to put it in the fire. And then he forms a calf. And he says, it's not the living God who rescued you out of Israel, or excuse me, out of Egypt. It is this inanimate golden calf. Like how foolish and ridiculous is that? And yet that's what he says, and they bow down, they worship, they offer sacrifices to this golden calf. They get drunk, and they engage in sexually explicit behavior that is far from God's plan for their life. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. God takes our sin seriously. Verse 9 and 10, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Testing the Lord, testing his patience. Really, what this is about is it's about the heart. Testing comes from an antagonistic heart, a heart of ingratitude, a heart that is focused on self rather than the goodness of God. They were supernaturally rescued from 400 years of slavery, led to the edge of the Red Sea. The Red Sea's parted, supernaturally provided meal after meal after meal. And their response is unfaithfulness and testing the Lord because they say, why did you bring us out here? We want to go back. Can you imagine 400 years of praying that God would deliver? God delivers and they're like, nah, this isn't all it cracked up to be. We want to go back. 
How ungrateful are you? How unaware are you in that moment? We must not grumble. To grumble is basically to focus primarily on what we do not have or do not yet have instead of all that God has done, how good God has been. So we see they craved all kinds of evil. They craved idolatry. They craved sexual immorality. They worshiped foreign gods. They tested the Lord and they grumbled against the Lord. And we read these consequences and you're like, man, that is intense. And it is. And Paul is intentionally retelling this story to the church at Corinth because at this point, he's told them again and again and again. He's addressed different things going on in the church, in their lives, saying, come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. You have lost your way. You are behaving in an immoral way. You're worshiping foreign gods. He is saying, you have to acknowledge the consequence of sin. Now, the last three verses, as I mentioned, are pretty heavy. And it it explicitly names the the serious consequence of sin. And and really to address the righteous wrath of God, um, as well as his perfect justice, we need a whole nother series. But let me give it a shot in like a paragraph. God is ultimately good. He's long-suffering. He's forgiving. He is loving. He is gracious. And from that place, he holds all people accountable to their behavior because he knows the way sin wreaks havoc on lives and on the world as a result. And to be clear in this passage, he is uh, judging those whose hearts have been hardened to him, those who have no interest in God. It's not a repentant believer. It's somebody who's like written God off, like I'm done with you. And so God acts justly in condemning them. And yet he is remarkably gracious. When we read scripture from beginning to end, we see again and again that God shows grace to those who do not deserve it. I mean, from the beginning, I mean, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Israelites, even Pharaoh, David, Jonah, Peter, all the way to you and me today, we see again and again that God, while he could justly demonstrate his wrath against us, instead, for a long time, if we are repent, he will show grace. He will welcome us home. But sin must be taken absolutely seriously. As we consider, or as we continue, verse 11 says, these things happened to them as examples. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The fulfillment of the ages is referring to Jesus Christ. They, Jesus Christ came around this time. They respond as a church to the good news of the gospel. They know him. And he is saying, because you're walking with Jesus Christ, we must learn and live differently. We must learn from the Israelites' mistakes and live differently because sin is never innocent and it is never insignificant. Sin is never innocent and never insignificant. That's why verse 12, he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 
If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Do not get overconfident, arrogant. Instead, be on your guard to make sure that you don't fall prey to the attack of the enemy. I love how he continues. This is, we're nearly at the end of the section we're looking at today. Verse 13, this may be a known passage to you, but consider the beauty in light of the backdrop that we just covered. Paul declares to the Corinthian Christ followers, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The enemy wants to isolate us. The enemy wants us to believe that the ways that we're tempted or the things that we're guilty of doing, that we are the only one in the world who could possibly stoop so low as to give in to that. He wants us to be alone because then we are greater victims to his attack. And what Paul is saying is that is a lie from the pit of hell. Regardless of the temptation that you face, regardless of the sin you're guilty of, you are not alone. And here's the best part. In the midst of that, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is with you. The church, you cannot forget that God is walking with you. He is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Let me just say this. I believe that God knew the Corinthian Christ followers threshold. I believe he knows our threshold and I think his understanding of our threshold is here. And for many of us, our understanding is a little bit more like ah, we just aren't that strong, resilient, gritty, tough. We, we can't handle anymore. And Jesus is like, mm, you're so wrong. But the important part, the critical part is to realize we are not standing on our own. God is faithful. When we are tempted, he will provide a way out so that we can stand victorious against sin, against temptation. God is so good. And he is telling the church at Corinth, I continue to be with you. Now choose to learn and live differently. And then Paul concludes by saying, I love this so much. Therefore, my dear friends, therefore, my dear friends, he could be like, therefore, you irritating group of Christ followers who can't figure it out. He could, he could have written nothing, no letter. He could have been like, I'm done with you. This is ridiculous. This is out of control. Instead, he concludes this section with, my dear friends, another translation says, my beloved, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their losing their way, in the midst of the times that again and again they give in to temptation, they give in to the realities of the culture at the time, Paul is saying, you are my dear friends. I love you so much and I long for you to know Jesus and to live for him. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't entertain it. Don't consider it. Flee, flee, run away. Don't be like, nah, I'm gonna show it who's boss. Don't be arrogant, flee. Stop looking at false gods as though they are real. You must not make anything or anyone to do or be what only God can do or be to satisfy our core desires, our divine needs. He is saying, stop. Paul admonishes the Corinthian believers to stop flirting with it and to run away. Get out of there. Get out of there. Paul longs for the church to live differently. 
He longs for the church to learn. He longs for the church to stop indulging in sinful behavior that is rebellious against God. He took sin extremely seriously, and so does Jesus. Jesus took sin extremely seriously. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look lustfully at your neighbor's wife, you have committed adultery. It's not just about what you do, it's about how you think. He continues to say, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, he's not saying literally sharpen the axe and have at it. Find the best spoon to stick in your eye socket. But the point is sin wreaks havoc. Get away from it. Treat it seriously. Treat it as a legitimate threat because it is. It only leads to death and destruction. He continues in uh, Matthew 18, or he says also in Matthew 18, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is not messing around. He is making an emphatic point. And throughout scripture, we read the same point that God speaks tremendously harshly regarding sin because he knows how ugly it is. He knows that it is solely responsible for all the hurt, the evil, the darkness, the destruction, the hatred, the racism, the sexism, the abuse. The worst of the worst things that exist in this world exist because of sin. Have an appropriate, have a healthy view of sin. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to focus on some some specific things that we can learn from our examples, the Israelites, the Corinthian believers, and that we can then learn and live differently. And that is exactly the first thing that we can do is that we can learn. We can live differently. As with my sister, Laura, I could have ignored that, right? I could have ignored the trouble that she got and been like, that won't happen to me. Or I could have been wise and learned and lived differently without it needing to happen to me before I could learn. We can learn and live differently from the example of the Israelites, from the example of the Corinthians. We can learn different, really beyond that. Anybody who's come before us who are followers of Christ, we can learn from their example. The second thing is that we can recognize the battle begins in our brains, not with our behavior. The battle begins in our brains, in our minds, not with our behavior. When I was um, around 10 years old, my dad got home from work. He was uh, changing out of his suit into his more comfortable clothes, and I was like, praise the Lord, I don't have to wear a suit to work. Um, But... He's changing and he reaches into his pocket and he grabs a couple quarters. And I was like, money, because every 10-year-old's interested in money. And I see him go to his closet or his dresser. He opens the door, top shelf. There's this really cool metal container. He reaches in there and drops the two quarters in there. And the sound that it made told me there was a lot more than two quarters in that little container. Noted. A few days later, I'm thinking, I really want candy. I have the worst sweet tooth. And so I go to the pantry. I go to our closets. I go to the refrigerator. I go to the freezer. There's nothing to be found. And I am craving some sugar. So I think, okay, do I have any money? Because then I can go to the store and get some candy. Sure don't. But I know where some is. 
the thought struck me. I began to entertain the thought. I began to consider the different things that I needed to be aware of to successfully get in and out of my father's room and with a couple more quarters in my pocket, if you know what I'm saying, right? So I I continued to just mull this over. What would it look like? When would it be? And then the opportunity presented itself. I snuck in. Grabbed four quarters, thought surely he won't notice this, closed the, door, the doors very quietly, snuck out, and went to the store, bought candy, ate it through the wrapper in the garbage can by the store so my parents had no clue and didn't ask any questions. Let me ask you this. You think that's the only time I did that? Unfortunately, no. All along, knowing what I had just done was wrong. From the beginning of the thought, I knew it was wrong, and yet I I, um, engaged it in thought. I entertained it. It grew. It grew. It grew to a place of momentum that I was like, it's not that big of a deal, and I justified it, gave in, and stole from my dad so that I could get candy. Temptation works in all ways, in all areas of our life and the same. There is a thought. We fuel the thought. We feed the thought. It grows in momentum. It grows and it grows and it grows and we justify it and we tell ourselves all sorts of things to make us feel okay about doing it while all the while knowing in our heart of hearts that it is wrong. And when we consider who our tempter is, it really should not surprise us. Jesus in John 8, verse 44 says, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, the enemy's greatest desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. That is Satan's MO. That is his motivation. And he does that through his toxic, evil, deceptive thoughts. What he, had did, what he did in Genesis 3, he continues to do to this day. He plants those little, simple statements or questions in our mind that then as we engage, we entertain, they grow and grow and grow until we make a choice to act. He whispers things like, no one will notice. Everyone is doing it. It won't hurt anyone. It's just one look, one drink, one time. If it makes you happy, I deserve it. It isn't a big deal. No one likes them anyway. You aren't loved. Has God given up on you? He whispers the most rancid things. And there are times where they land and we begin to entertain. Is that true? And the more we do that, what we feed grows. What we feed grows. And Satan knows it's a slippery slope. He knows really all he needs to do is to present the lie and then little mini affirmations along the way to keep the ball moving down the field. James 1, 13 to 15 um, explains it to us in this way. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. 
Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I know I've said this repeatedly. I'm gonna say it one more time. When we ruminate on a tempting thought, we feed it, and it becomes more appealing. Our desire grows until it feels like it's an impossibility to say no, to say no. And that's why what Paul says to the church at Corinth, his second letter to the church at Corinth is so incredibly important. Uh, Chapter 10, verse five, he says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We take captive our thoughts, the things that we hear, the things that we think. We take, take them captive and we hold them up against the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ. And if they are not in alignment, we throw it away. We say, Lord, this is not of you. Please help this get out of my head. Help me stop entertaining it. Help me choose to uh, instead replace this lie with truth. We must take captive every thought if we want to live differently, if we want to learn from our example. And then this leads us to the third truth, because the reality is, is we cannot do this on our own. That is an impossible task on our own. The third thing we can do is to surrender to God to surrender to God. When we come to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are choosing to say, you are Lord, you are King of my life. Your way is above mine. I submit and I surrender my will, my way to you. You are the authority in my life. In essence, it's saying, when God and I disagree, I assume I am very, very wrong. That's what that says. And the first way that we can surrender to God is by asking him, saying, Lord, would you search me and show me? Would you search me and show me? Now, I have a little confession to make. I like scaring people. Um, There's something about, and some of you are sick and twisted like me, just seeing them jump, it's like, ooh, that's fun. Um, But here's the thing, I don't do that to just anybody. So don't be on guard for me in the commons following service. But, but I will say when I have a good friendship with somebody and they're a jumpy friend, I look for my opportunities. And it happens that we have one on staff. Her name is Suzanne. She is amazing. And Suzanne have I, and I have been working together for quite some time and she is jumpy. And so I know where her office is and I take the sneaky route to her office so she can't see me. And I sneak. And then I stand outside her office and I lurk. Yeah, I lurk. And I wait for the moment when she is like in mid keystroke because that tells me she's focused. And then I, ha! And she is wonderful. She ah! Like screams, like literally screams. And then there's this ripple of laughter through the office because everybody else enjoys it too. Now, um... (laughs) Now, here's the thing, like Suzanne, if she wanted to guard herself against my sneak attack, she could simply ask some people in the office, hey, like give me a caca, caca, like when Scott's coming. If Scott's on the loose and it looks like he's sneaking or lurking, like let me know. And if she heard that warning sign, she would be on guard, right? She'd be ready for it. Unfortunately for her, no one in the office would want to do that because they enjoy it as much as me. But... If they did, my surprise would be ruined. And here's the reality. When we invite God to search us and show us, he sees all, he knows all, and he is 
faithful, as we've talked about, and he will let you know. He will expose the lies, the deceit, the trickery of the enemy every single time, but we have to ask. We have to invite him to do that. We can ask him to search me and show me. Show me, Lord, what temptations am I entertaining? We're really great at having blinders on, thinking the best of ourselves, not seeing ourselves as we truly are at times. What temptations am I entertaining? What am I susceptible to give in to temptation? What are my reoccurring temptations? Are there thoughts or behaviors I have normalized that do not honor you? Are there thoughts or behaviors that I have normalized that are not of you? And please show me what sin I have given into or continue to give into that maybe I'm overlooking sins of commission. That means things that I am doing. That could be thoughts, words, actions, or sins of omission, meaning God says, I want you to go and do this thing. And we just say, no, I'm good. Both are equally rebellious. Would we have the courage to to say say to God, to ask God, will you search me and show me? A few years ago, my wife and I, Natalie, and I were given an incredible opportunity to build a house. Never done that before. Um, And we were on a tight budget, and I was learning all sorts of things along the way. One of them was... Um, There is a lot of waste when the framers are done. Like there is a lot of wood cuttings that there is nothing they can use them for or do with them. And so then it's on the homeowner to dispose of them. In our case, we were like, don't get rid of anything because we don't want to pay you to do that. Um, And so it was like, well, I don't want to take these to the dump because then I have to pay for it. And I was like, wood burns. And I didn't know at this point that you're not supposed to burn wood like this. Um, So we had fires and it was awesome, but they burnt slow until my brother-in-law came over one day carrying his leaf blower. And he's like, hey, wanna speed it up? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, check this out. Wow, fires up his leaf blower and then just puts it at the base where the coals are hot and just and the flames leapt because it's all sorts of oxygen, right, fueling it. And all of a sudden, what was a small fire, it was burning. It was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It began to consume wood so fast that I was like, yeah, keep going. And I'm just going to load this, this pile up. Like, this is incredible. Kept blowing oxygen on that fire to help it burn hotter, to consume more. Sin can burn like a fire in our life. And it can burn out of control. And it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And it consumes more and more and more. And it impacts more and more people the longer it exists. And so then we have to ask ourselves, how do we kill the fire? How do we suffocate the fire? How do we starve it? How do we starve the fire? And that leads us to the third thing that we can do. We can surrender to God by asking him to forgive me. By asking him to forgive me. In order to to invite God to forgive me, I recommend that we do a couple things first. We ask him to search us and show us. And then when he does, we name it. We have the courage to say, this is the thing that I'm thinking. This is the thing that I'm entertaining. This is the thing that I'm doing. Naming it. This is the impact of the sin that I am committing. And then saying, God, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And there is something about this simple act of repentance and forgiveness that it frees 
us from feeling trapped in the same thing. It's the beginning. It's not always this simple, but it is the first step to suffocating the fire. Because in asking God to forgive us, we're acknowledging that it's wrong, and we are wanting to say no. 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 To the tempting thoughts, to the sinful behavior, to the sinful thought. We want to say no. And the more we say no to something, the more we starve it. The more we starve it, the less power it has in our life. So we need to ask God to forgive us. And the scriptures declare, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive you for all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in that act, he reunites us. We have created a barrier between us and God, and with that barrier in place, we are susceptible to give in to more and more temptation. But when we ask God to forgive us, it removes that, and God is right there, and we have more access to him. Not because he's gone anywhere, but because we have gone somewhere. He is always right there, ready to be engaged and willing and help. So the third thing we can do that is so critical is we can surrender to God by asking him to guide me, by asking him to guide me. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. As we've learned in this series, the Holy Spirit of God, when we have a relationship with Jesus, dwells within us. And the scripture declares that he is there to guide us into all truth. He is there to navigate us through the landmines, through the deceptive landmines that the enemy puts out in our life every single day. He wants to guide us away from those things. In essence, he wants to guide us to be obedient to the spirit and to avoid the flesh. To obedient into the spirit and to avoid the flesh. The flesh is our base primal drives for self-gratification as a, per, or as a person. Said otherwise, our sinful nature. The spirit is God's empowering presence in us. And in um, Galatians 5, Paul says something that's so um, true and difficult, and it also leads us to, to the awareness that we need to be on our, gu- our guard constantly. Because in chapter 5, he says, These two forces, flesh and spirit, are constantly fighting one another, and our choices are never free from this conflict. We need God to guide us because, again, his vision is perfect, ours is not. We need him to guide us, and what we feed grows, what we starve dies. If we feed the Spirit repeatedly, it gets easier to say yes to the Spirit, yes to a life that is centered around God. If we say yes to the flesh, it becomes easier and easier to say yes to a life that is centered around me. One leads to a wonderful, purpose-filled, life-giving life, an abundant life, as Jesus says, And yet when we feed the flesh, it only leads every time to sadness, disappointment, emptiness, hurt, and destruction. We need to ask God to guide us, but that leads us to the last thing that we have to do as well. To guide us is not not enough alone. We need to surrender to God by asking him to strengthen me, to strengthen me. Paul, in his second letter to the church at Corinth, I love what he says in chapter 12. He, it's a moment of incredible transparency. 
incredible transparency. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insults and in hardship and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me say something to everyone this morning, everyone today. You are weak. Not easy to hear. And if you're like, I got a problem with that, Scott. Don't take it up with me, take it up with Jesus, because Jesus in uh, John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no way that you can stand up against temptation or sin apart from me. But God is faithful, and when we are tempted, he is with us. And when we are tempted, he will provide a way out every single time. And we need God to guide us, to help us to see clearly, and to strengthen us, to give us the resolve that we need to say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. We need him to strengthen us moment by moment day by day. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we are new creations for those who would say, you are our Lord and Savior. And because of that, we are set free from the bondage to sin. I wonder, are you living in a way that reflects that truth? Or are you living in a way where you're like, I don't really have a choice. It's not a big deal. That's a question I need to ask myself. Am I living in a way that reflects the truth that Jesus has rescued me from bondage to slavery, that I do not have to give in to temptation ever? I wanna close with this. I named this sermon, or I titled this sermon, Our Example. And really, we can take that two ways. It's our example, as in the Apostle Paul saying to the church at Corinth, we need to learn from our example that came before us. But we can look at it another way as well. What is our example? And so I want to ask you just very, very simply, how are you doing at living or at learning and living from our examples throughout the pages of history, or throughout the pages of Scripture, throughout your life? How are you doing at living and lear or learning and living differently as you learn from the examples? And what kind of example are you setting for those in your life and those who would come behind you? Is it one that demonstrates that we are free from sin, that sin wreaks havoc and I want nothing to do with it, and I only want to say yes to the Spirit?